Appreciate it, brother. Good morning, church. Wonderful to see uh, all of you. If there's any kids that want to go to Gospel Project, parents, feel free to walk them out, and they will get some great teaching that's age-specific. Everybody else will be in Daniel chapter 10 today, so uh, you could find the Bible underneath the seat in front of you, or the one that you brought with you, and you can turn with me there, please. I want to commend you as we get started this morning. Daniel is not an easy book, and you have labored well. So as we make our way toward the end here, last couple of weeks in the book together, just want to thank you. There's a lot of churches probably that couldn't take 12 weeks through the book and continue to stay engaged and growing, and uh, it is hard to interpret, and uh, the subject matter is challenging. There's certain things we cannot be absolutely certain about, so I'm just grateful for the opportunity to have worked through it with you. This kind of series demands both hard work and humility, and you've displayed them so well. So I, I'm just so grateful for you. The second half of the second half of the book of Daniel, so the last fourth, is uh, where we begin today. And uh, in some ways, this last section is different than the ones that have come before it. The book has been building to a climax, and that climax will come in chapter 12, where it points to the resurrection. And to get us there, there's one big final vision that takes place in the book. And what's different this time is it takes three whole chapters to give us one vision. All the other visions have taken place in one chapter. That tells us that this is of uh, unique significance in the experience of Daniel, and in the mind of God to give us this final vision. Essentially, uh, chapter 10 is the on-ramp to the vision. Chapter 11 into the first part of 12 is the vision itself, and then the end of 12, so 12, 5 through the end is the final uh, sort of conclusion to it. So we could take uh, one very long sermon and do 10, 11, and 12 at one setting, because it is a natural uh, unit. And yet, your Bible uh, translators put that in three chapters, in part because there's three sections that really address uh, the, the, the sections really well. And so we're going to do it in, group, uh, in a group of three over the next three weeks. The reason for that is I think the subject matter we'll be dealing with today is largely material that we're underprepared for. We're, we're going to address a topic today that my guess is most of us have not thought about at all in the last week, month, maybe even this year. So I want to slow down and really consider it carefully with you for there's lots of implications to it. But look with me if you would at verse 1 because it serves as the introduction to the whole section. Uh, it says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. He understood the word and had understanding of the vision. That is the introduction to chapters 10, 11, and 12. So it's telling us what's going to come the next three weeks. And the reason it's important is it grounds us in a particular moment. You see, this is two years after the events of chapter 9. So two years after the Jews were told, you can go back 
to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple, rebuild your lives, exile's over. Then we enter into chapters 10, 11, and 12. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, a Dutch man named Abraham Kuyper, who was a journalist, a theologian, and eventually the prime minister of the Netherlands, wrote this. If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battles we have ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That's where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggles drone in its backlash. Is that true? Is there scriptural warrant for that? This morning we come to one of several passages in the Bible where we come to see that Abraham is exactly right. And perhaps for many of us, we need to buckle our seatbelts because this is not something we think much about, let alone are we ready to deal with its implications. For many, Christianity has been domesticated. If your functional understanding of the faith is all bound up in what you can explain, and if you lean towards a, a, a rationalistic, naturalistic understanding of Christianity, this is going to be very, very challenging for you. My hope and prayer has been this week that Daniel 10 would blow a hole in your thinking and that God would fill that hole with truth because then you'll be much stronger and more able to live the Christian life with joy and better equipped to help people. So let's get to it. Verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies. Now, you might be thinking that means scones and cake. But it says meat. No meat or wine entered my mouth. Nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Now, by this point, church, we know Daniel to be a man of deep faith. We know him to be a man who for decades, he's pushing 90 at this point probably, he has lived faithfully for God. And in these verses, he's mourning. He's mourning by fasting and prayer. To fast is to abstain from food or some types of food for the purpose of particularly focused prayer. In this case, Daniel observed what's called a partial fast, meaning there were certain foods he didn't eat. He didn't eat meat, nor did he drink wine. If you've never gone without food for the purpose of spiritual benefit, I'd encourage you to. You might try simply in the coming week or two, skip a meal, skip lunch or dinner, and in whatever time you would have used to prepare that meal and to eat that meal, instead, replace that time with prayer. And then from, let's say that's lunch, from lunch until dinner, every time your belly grumbles, let that be a reminder, a prompt to go to God in prayer. That's what fasting is. 
Jesus assumed his followers would fast. It's simply part of what it means to be a disciplined Christian. Physical weakness given over to the Lord becomes an occasion for renewed spiritual strength. That's the point. The point is that as we feel a physical loss, it would cause us to be more aware of our spiritual loss. And in so doing, we would find God strengthening us. That's what Daniel was doing. That's not something you ever do. Then quit depriving yourself of a great spiritual blessing. It's a wonderful means God has given us to grow in Him. Now, Daniel, you see, was fasting, praying, and mourning for a reason that's not expressly mentioned here in this particular chapter. But because the chapter grounds us at a moment in time historically, we can reconstruct what was going on. Two years prior to this, so what we talked about last week, brothers and sisters, uh, the king of the new empire of Persia had said, the Babylonian exile is over. All you Jews who want to go home and rebuild the temple, you now can. And he signed an edict and sent them on their way. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can look at the book of Ezra, so Ezra chapter 1, or the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 36. They both tell us that that's exactly what happened. So after 70 years, 70 years of God's people praying, God let us go home. Then God finally said yes to that prayer. Ezra tells us that as they reached the city of Jerusalem, which lie in ruins, no one had lived there, that they first started with rebuilding the temple. But before they rebuilt the temple, they built an altar. And they then began offering sacrifices to God for the first time in 70 years. We missed last, week, last year 12 weeks of gathered corporate worship. We're still dealing with the effects of that loss. But imagine not 12 weeks, but 70 years. That's what the Jews had faced. And now they're back at home, offering sacrifices, gathering for corporate worship, and they've laid the foundation for a new temple to be constructed. But no sooner did they begin than their new neighbors began provoking them, causing them difficulty. The Samaritans had stayed in the areas around Jerusalem, and they didn't like the Jews returning. They had constructed their own system of worship. They didn't want the Jews in the way. And so they began making it very, very hard for them. So hard, in fact, that the construction ground to an, a halt. They could not continue because of the level of conflict preventing them from continuing. So hostile were these neighbors that for the next 15 years, they could not continue. Can you imagine how devastating that would have been? For 70 years they've prayed, God, let us go home. Then they get home and they have a few weeks, maybe a few months. And then they're stuck at home, unable to do the very things they went home to do. If you've ever had a prayer that you've prayed for a long, long time, and then it seems as though God answers it, and your, your spirit soars, your emotions are lifted, only to find, boom, that thing is taken away. That's what they would have faced. Now, it seems as though what happened is news of the opposition traveled back to Daniel, who was too old to make the trip. And his response to it was to mourn, to fast, and to pray. 
Notice that he didn't take to Twitter to complain. He didn't cancel the Samaritans. And he didn't go on a Netflix binge to deal with his sadness. Instead, he went to God in prayer. Even though that God may have been the one he felt disappointed in or frustrated by or confused about. He leaned into the Lord by leaning into his spiritual disciplines. Friend, we faced so much crisis and unexpected opposition and difficulty in the last year. How many times that provoke you to mourn, to pray, to fast? Let's see what happened next. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, which to us is, doesn't mean anything, but what that's telling us is this was during Passover. So there are three occasions in which Jews were to travel back to Jerusalem and commemorate great events of God done on their behalf. The most significant of them was Passover, when they were rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery, and brought into God's place. Daniel is stuck far, far away. And it's at particularly this time he feels the loss of God's people. As I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now you'll notice that this refers to this appearance that Daniel saw as a man. Despite the fact that Jill quotes verse 6 about me every time I walk in a room, this was no mere human being. This was a way of Daniel saying, God sent an angel, and the angel appeared in human form. Daniel was standing by a river a mile wide. He was contemplating and mourning and praying, and then this angel showed up. This angel was magnificent. His clothes are brilliant white, symbolizing purity and holiness. His belt was fine gold, his body like a precious stone. His face was as blinding as lightning and far better than David Bowie's. His arms and legs shone and his face boomed like an enormous crowd cheering at a sporting event. Imagine, press yourself to imagine what that might have looked like then maybe you're just scratching the surface. 
David saw this angel in the air above the Tigris River, and he was so overwhelmed, he fainted. He lost consciousness and fell to the ground. Daniel, at this point in his life, had seen many, many, many things. But he'd never seen anything like this. This stunned him. And in in the narration of the book, this is meant to tell us what's coming is of unique significance in the whole entire book. Now, if we push pause on the story and talk for a moment about angels, I think that'd be helpful to us. God created spiritual beings called angels. At least that I know of, I've never seen one. But the Bible leaves absolutely no question about their existence and their involvement in the world. Friend, if you have trouble believing it and you're a Christian, then remember that your own experience is not the blazing center of reality. There are all kinds of things that are true that you have no knowledge of experientially. But that shouldn't be a problem for us. After all, we believe in one who rose from the dead. I've never seen that before either. So angels exist. And because angels are spiritual beings, we don't normally see them. But sometimes, for particular reasons of great significance, God causes them to appear in a visible form, like Daniel 10. And Daniel was dumbfounded by what he saw. Look at verse 10. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he, that's the angel, said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand up, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. In other words, you've been praying for three weeks, morning, fasting, I've come. I started on the first day of your prayer. I've come for that reason. It's hard imagine what this would have been like. I just don't have a category for it. And yet the angel came and he touched Daniel, lifting him from his fainting spell, and he offered words of comfort. The, The spiritual world, we might say, broke into the physical. And Daniel's response was trembling. Friends, on this side of heaven, angels are much more powerful than we are. And so Daniel, when he saw this being, was terrified. And yet, consider the first thing the angel told Daniel. Consider what he referred to him as. The man greatly loved. Loved by God, that is. What an amazing picture. That's the first thing the angel declared. Daniel, you are loved, greatly loved. Friends, if the angel is to God what a candle is to the sun, and yet that God says, I love you, how deeply that ought to impact Daniel. And it's not just Daniel. You see, 
God loves all His children. If you know Jesus Christ, that means you. God loves you. Brother or sister, you are greatly loved by God. Far more important than how much money you have, whether you're married or not, whether you have children or not, how many accolades you have developed, how big your portfolio is, how many followers you have on Instagram. Your central identity is grounded in the fact that God loves you. If you have the love of God, nothing else matters. That is central reality. I think that's why the angel announces that to Daniel first. He's reminding him of what matters most. He is loved by God. If this wasn't church, you'd be hooping and hollering and screaming and waving. As the most famous verse in the Bible puts it, for God so loved the world. You are loved by God, and you are loved by God in a way that Daniel could not have grasped because you're on this side of the cross. Now, the angel told Daniel that God sent him in response to his prayer. It seems that as Daniel was mourning for the Jews, struggling to understand, in God's great mercy, he purposed to send this angel to communicate something to Daniel. And through Daniel, to the original audience, and then all the way down to today. God sent the angel immediately, but by the time that the angel arrived, three full weeks had passed. Now that raises a, a rather important question. If the angel was of this much resplendency and power, then why did it take him three weeks to get there? I mean, if wherever the angel was and Daniel was in Persia, 20 miles from Babylon at this point, by the river, and the, the angel is of a power that's unimaginable to us. What's up with the commute? I mean, He's not riding on public transit in Tempe with the construction traffic. So what took him this long to get there? Well, it turns out the answer to that question is very important to this story. Look at verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. That's what we'll look at together next week. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. Now here's where things might feel weird and might push you beyond your present understanding a bit. Remember the concept Abraham Kuyper gave us. There are spiritual battles in the heavenlies which are more significant than the physical battles here on earth. And there is some relationship between the two. This passage I just read tells us that that's true. Why did the angel take 21 days to arrive? Well, 
he said it was because he was battling the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, it's a little hard to hear that without some Disney song starting in your head. But this is no child's story. The Bible here teaches that an unnamed angel was sent to Daniel with an answer to prayer. And yet he couldn't get there because between his location and Daniel's, he came across this other being. This other being was a fallen angel. One of those who had rebelled against God and chose instead to follow Satan. Friends, just like there's good angels, there are bad angels. Most of the time, we think of them as demons. Now, where did they come from? Well, all angels are created beings. God is the only uncreated being. So God created heavenly beings and earthly beings. And of those heavenly beings, somewhere between Genesis 1.31, when God said, everything I made is good, and the start of Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, when the serpent, the embodiment of Satan, is there to tempt God's people. Somewhere between those verses, there was a rebellion in heaven. That rebellion, we know, was Satan seeking to become like God, wanting his own throne. And a third of the angels followed him. We have no idea how many that is. God, in response, threw them out of his presence. And ever since then, there has been a cosmic battle. And apparently, there is a hierarchy in their respective kingdoms. There's titles, there's roles, there's levels of power. And we, friends, are not unaffected. In fact, just think about that. An angel sent to deliver a message, and he cannot get there, because he's fighting with a demon. So interconnected are things in the spiritual realm that they affect things in the physical realm. Now, what does this have to do with the book? Recall with me that for the last several months, we've been dealing with four earthly kingdoms. Four kingdoms that from Daniel's day until the birth of Christ would be reigning over God's people. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These are four historical superpowers, each having dominance over God's people until Jesus Christ came. We've moved now in Daniel 10 from Babylon to Medo-Persia. And this text tells us that Persia had a prince or a demon in charge of protecting it in the heavenlies. Because the demon in the heavenlies fights for Persia, he apparently resisted the angel coming to see Daniel. And it was only when... Now, I don't pretend to have any idea what they were doing up there. I mean, do they have lightsabers? Are they going to fisticuffs? I don't know. Speculation beyond what the text says isn't helpful. God's given us all that we need to know. So apparently it doesn't really matter. But the battle is only won when the archangel, known as Michael, shows up, tags in, and kicks some demon hiney. That's what the text says. 
Now, the Bible does not often give us this level of detail. If you're here for the first time and you've never opened the scriptures, there's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible, but this is exceptional. This isn't every text, okay? But that doesn't mean it's unimportant because it describes for us a stunning reality. And this isn't the only place in the Bible where we see this. In fact, the most famous is the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. In the book of Job, Job chapter 1, we're given an incredibly graphic picture. We tend to think of our lives as though they're lived on one stage. So imagine with me, there is no COVID, and you're still able to go to plays. In a play, you pay money, you sit in your chair, and you watch a drama unfolding on the stage. We tend to think of our lives as we're the ones on the stage, we're the main actors, we're in charge, and the spotlight's on us. And yet, the book of Job says there is another stage. The other stage is in the heavenlies. And the drama unfolding in the heavenlies is directly impacting the drama on earth in our own lives. The book of Job is essentially about this. Satan and his kingdom say to God, you aren't worth following. The only one who would ever give their lives to you and follow you and obey you does so because you dispense blessings on them. They love what you give them, not who you are. You hear the accusation there. This is, is God worthy of worship? Friend, there is no more important question than that. It, Job chapter 1 is about God's reputation. That's what's at stake. He's being accused of not being worth anything. That is the stage upon which the drama of the book of Job plays out in the heavenlies. And yet there's another stage, the stage on earth. The stage in which Job's life, who is a follower of God, becomes increasingly difficult because in Job's life, we'll see the answer to the stage in the heavenlies. That is the first thing written in the scriptures. That should tell us something of the significance of these two stages. There's a relationship between the two, between your life and God's reputation, between God's reputation and our shared life together. The clashes of the Christian and the church against the forces of worldliness and evil hostility here on earth turn out to be mere shadows of the far more intense battles on the stage in the heavenlies. Now, why does that matter? Some of this may sound like philosophical jargon to you. What's the significance of it in terms of everyday life? Well, I think we could say this. This is true at such a fundamental level that the root cause of difficulties on this stage is not husband against wife, child against parent, employer against employee, media against Christian. 
The root cause is the underlying spiritual battle every one of us is engaged in. Whether we realize it or not, what's playing out here is a reflection of what's happening up there. So let's make this really practical. Why is something as wonderful as sex twisted into pornography that is ravaging Christian men? Why can a guy be innocently on a sports page reading about a sports event when an almost naked lady pops up on the side? He did not go looking for her. She just showed up. The amount of restraint it takes not to say, I'll tango with her, is more than most men can bear. Why? Why does that destroy so many men's experience of the victory of the Christian life? Well, it's because the battle on this stage is a reflection of a battle up there. Why do fights between church members get so vicious and churches seem to split more than a heavy man's pants after eating at Golden Corral. Why? Why do these exiles who after 70 years of praying within the span of a, of a few weeks have the effort to rebuild the central place to worship God on earth stopped? Today, why are the church and the gospel uniquely singled out among Christian religions for opposition and hostility from the world? Why is that? Well, the implication of Daniel 10 tells us that the battles here are reflections of battles up there. Now, is this just a weird one-off in Daniel 10 or a two-off in Job 1? And did Jesus coming just replace all this? Is there a present reality? Well, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 puts it this way. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The fight is not in the end against husband and wife. But against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this is a tricky thing, so hang with me. We, of course, bear personal responsibility for our actions. Each and every one of us make meaningful, real choices. Hundreds of thousands of them. Every week, if not every day. And yet, the Bible pulls back the curtain of the spiritual realm here in Daniel 10 to show us what we are knowingly or unknowingly involved in. Now, in some Christian circles, this stuff gets tremendously overblown. And it becomes, the way people talk becomes like this. I was coming to work today, I was running late, and the enemy kept giving me red lights. That's, boss, why I'm late. Or, Every time somebody gets sick, it's satanic. Or every difficulty is thought of as demonic. Every hint of attitude from somebody means there's an evil angel inside of them. Those kinds of statements are dangerous overreaches. Because there's no way you can actually know any of that. 
And yet, there are other Christian circles where angels, demons, the reality of the unseen world is rarely, if ever, even considered. There's like a a veneer of rationalism over the top of a book that is thoroughly spiritual in nature. That's a huge mistake as well. God shouldn't be domesticated. So there's these twin dangers for us to avoid. Overemphasis and underemphasis. Where do you lean? Where do we as a church lean? Probably this way. Probably more of us don't ever think about this. This is why we go book by book through the Bible because it forces us to consider realities we wouldn't naturally turn to. May we hold tightly to all God says. Even things we don't fully grasp. Now as news of this fell on Daniel and the angel told him another vision was about to come. We'll study that next week. Daniel humbly looked at the ground and he was so overwhelmed that the Bible says he turned to mute. Why was that? Well, because as Daniel considered the stage in the heavens, the stage on earth, the relationship between the two, the fact that he's deeply loved by God, that God sent him, and yet this angel was powerful enough to be resisted by a demon, all of this recalls to Daniel's own mind his own sins, his sins of speech. And so he's silenced before the holiness of God. Now, what does God do in response Well, if you feel rather frightened by all of this, if you feel a bit rattled in soul, then the response that Daniel got will be greatly beneficial to you. Look with me at verse 16. Behold, one of the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. He's talking about the angel. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, By reason of the vision pains that have come upon me, I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. The last verse, verse 11, one is saying, From the moment the edict went out that the Jews could return from exile to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, this battle ensued. I've been engaged since then for the last two years, not just the last three weeks. These two paragraphs are enormously instructive for us to understand the implications of what we are supposed to do about all of this. These verses reveal in both the angels' words and deeds the sweetness of God's disposition toward his own. And the reason why you and I shouldn't be so paralyzed by a spiritual realm 
duking it out in a way that affects us, that we can't get out of bed. Take, for example, the fact that the angel came and touched Daniel's lips. Why did he do that? Well, this was an, an act symbolic of his cleansing, of forgiveness, of removal of sin. It was an act of mercy, God empowering Daniel. God's really good at that. You've probably, Christian, already been empowered in ways today you don't even realize. The angel then strengthened Daniel, reassuring him of his position, his identity. You are one loved by God. You are at peace with God. And then he gave him the command. The only commands in the whole passage. Fear not and be strong and of good courage. Friend, what are we supposed to do in light of the fact that there are Battles in the heavenlies of which we play a part. That's what we're to do. We're to fear not, and we are to be strong and of good courage. How in the world could Daniel not be afraid? I mean, three times he interacts with this angel, and he's overrun and overwhelmed. And yet, he reaches a point where he says, I have been strengthened. What is it that strengthened him? Well, the angel did, but the reference to the book of truth is very helpful to us because what verse 21 is referring to is something reflective of the fact that everything is under God's purview. You see, brother or sister, you need not fear that angels and demons more powerful than you can wreck your spiritual life. You need not fear that. You need not fear that a battle on the stage of heaven today may rend God impotent. That's not what's at stake. This book of truth is God's book of what's going to happen. It's the book that he wrote. He's in charge. You see, the battles are significant, but the outcome isn't ultimately in question. Maybe we could put it this way in terms of summarizing the whole paragraph. Daniel's encounter with a magnificent angel reveals that the battles of this world are interconnected with the battles in the heavenlies, all of which fall under God's sovereign control. God's in charge. God's going to win. What's wrong with you? This demands hooping and hollering. God wins. Christian, you, like Daniel, need not fear. You need not cower at home in your closet. We need not be fearful that around every corner is a demon ready to trash our lives and with the power to do so, unilaterally, able to resist God in an effective way. That does not exist. The church need not back away from the Bible so as to make truth, quote-unquote, more palatable and moldable and likable. No, we need simply humbly, lovingly to stand in what's true. And to do so today with the confidence that we understand more about God than Daniel ever could have. Because 
while Daniel may have had spiritual experiences that we don't have or have not yet had, we have the truth that God Himself entered humanity, lived the life we were supposed to, died the death we deserve, and rose again victoriously. God's victory, you see, in the end is sure. How do we know that? How do we know that we need not fear, but just respect the topic we're addressing today? How do we know that God wins? Well, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 puts it this way. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Here's what that means. Satan overplays his hand. Satan believed that if he could just murder the Son of God, then that would put an end to God's work and power and plan. Because if God sent God himself to rescue people, and then that resulted in the death of the Messiah, the Christ, what else could God do? And so, as Jesus hung on the cross and died, why was the sky black? Well, it's because the battle in the heavenlies was interacting with the battle on earth. And yet, Satan overplayed his hand. Because it's in the death of Christ that the ultimate victory was won. And when Christ rose again, he demonstrated victory that not even death could keep him. Satan's greatest tool is the infliction of the end of life. And yet Christ was far more powerful. And in his resurrection and his death, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he open-shamed them, and he triumphed over them. Amen? Now, if you want to wrestle with how to pray about this, read the rest of Ephesians 6. I referenced that chapter earlier. It gives you language and even visual images for being ready for the day. Read it. Pray it. Don't be unfamiliar with it. But what's the command here? The command isn't that after every weird thing that happens to you, you call up a friend and say, oh my gosh, a demon just almost got me. The command isn't that when you have a need, you pray that God would send you your own personal chubby little angel. Okay? The, the, the caricatures of this stuff are ridiculous. The command is, fear not, be strong and of good courage. That's it. How do you be strong and of good courage? Well, you remember the victories won in Christ, and Ephesians 6, you put on the armor of God. And then, Christian, when you're in a fight with another Christian, don't be so dadgum selfish that you think that at the end of the day, that's about the two of you. It's not. Hardships, difficulties, opposition within the church and from the world upon the church are ultimately tied up in the spiritual realities in which God's reputation is at stake. Let us lay down our lives, fearing not, being of good courage, walking in the armor of God, laboring 
together that God might be seen for who He is. During the Protestant Reformation, a man named Martin Luther dared to stand up to the Catholic Church. This was the only Christianity in existence in his part of the world. The church had become uh, enraged in false doctrine, teaching that you could pay to get people out of purgatory. That was the church-building program of his day. He did not want to create a new church. He wanted to reform the one that existed. And yet the opposition against him was so severe, he was sequestered by friends to hide in a castle. Now that sounds good, but it wasn't. Because he couldn't leave. He would be arrested and perhaps burned at the stake. During Daniel's, uh, Martin Luther's time in that castle, he did not pull out Twitter and go off on the Roman Catholic Church. He viewed it as a spiritual battle. If you've ever read any of this guy, he's a character. He used to say he could uh, chase Satan away with a good fart. You do with that what you wish. But during this time in the castle, he translated the Bible because normal people didn't have Bibles. The Bible was only available in Latin, of which nobody spoke. So he didn't go on Netflix, he didn't go on Twitter, alone in a castle, hiding for his life, he translated the Bible. Another thing he did was write a song. The song is called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let me read you one of the verses in closing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, command one. For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. That's the other. Be of good courage. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Father, we pray this passage today would cause us to be much, much more aware of the reality that what happens here is a reflection of what happens there. We pray that we would see with greater spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears. Pray for brothers and sisters here who may have gotten embroiled in evil things Pray for repentance and cleansing today. I pray in the coming week we would not fear, nor would we be unaware. But we'd labor with our disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, fasting, to see your work advance. We thank you that we're on the winning side, not because we deserve to be, but because you chose us. We pray that would be wasted on none of us. In Jesus' name.